to go back to an initial claim that you made, which was the Australian public is utterly absorbed with this matter. I don't know if they are. I mean, you know, everyone in media claims to know the real people. And if the matter did absorb everyday people, it was only because you know, it was put front and centre of so-called media debate. So as you so sagely said, one, why even have the conversation, is Australia racist? Uh, as you know, Australia, which was founded on the shoddy lie of, of terra nullius, Australia, which is yet to have a treaty, you know, Australia, which you can point to many policies within and many economic facts to say, well, you know, of course there is racial discrimination, one's chance of, you know, a whole lot of like appalling health outcomes. Um, of um, you know a lack of wealth, et cetera, et cetera, is attributed to people, oftentimes by well, largely by race. So you know why ask that question? But I think the media, and by extension, people who feel some kind of kinship with the media, um, that is, you know, a growing class of of so-called knowledge workers. They and knowledge work occurs you know, all around the shop. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Like, you, you know, even people who work in the retail sector, which is our second largest employer, work very much um, to a standard of knowledge. You know, uh, you're supposed to... You, you've heard those stories, right, about, you know, the big W uh, lunchroom having signs up to encourage people to, like, increase the share price of big W and stuff like that. So there is this knowledge, right? Do, do you get what I mean? Yeah, certainly. There's uh, yeah. this sort of managerial class almost that's uh, developed around around this. Yeah, and I mean, but even people in you know um, so-called minimum wage jobs um, are encouraged to understand themselves as as managers, as representative as representatives of the company, rather than you know workers whose um, labour is being exploited. Which is not a judgment call. It's just a fact. Um, you know, people extract the surplus from the work. So there's this very broad identification with the power of communication and the power of words. And added to this, you know, um, most everybody in Australia uses Facebook. Uh, most everybody in Australia is uh, conscious of the presence of at least one or two major hashtags. And the media class itself spends all day on Twitter. And so you get large numbers of people fully believing in, you know, the um, the power of communication, which is actually a relatively recent idea. You know, I mean, this is not to say that propaganda hasn't been used persuasively for a hundred years, but everyday people kind of think of their ability to be propagandists, and this is not just true of the liberal left, but it's true of you know the ethno nationalists. The, the right as well, um, and you can see this reflected um, in the you know the two kinds um, of thought categories that we have in mainstream media here. So on the one hand, you have your news corp um, outlets, television, and and uh, print saying it's all a case of political correctness gone bad, and that political correctness gone bad is the source. Um, and political correctness is mostly, you know, language, knowledge, like using the right term, using what somebody's decreed to be the right term. And you see this happen um, 
you know, say here in uh, Victoria, where I'm talking to you from, um, the CPSU has, that's the Commonwealth Public Sector Union, has decided that, you know, public servants will refer to each other as they on a Wednesday. Now, while I fully support that, um, uh, the idea of, you know, having effing good manners and calling a gender non-binary person they, I don't like the idea of this coming as a decree from top down because whatever we say as workers, we're always necessarily suspicious of what the boss tells us. You know, we know it's not ultimately for our own good, um, you know, you're in very rare cases. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand you get, oh, well, you know, they day is the origin of all that is wrong. And then you get maybe a liberal left saying, well, Bay Day is the origin of all that is right. And so on both sides, you get this understanding that the language, the representation, the cartoon is where everything can be changed. And not only is this the site of change itself, you know, it's where change comes from, but it seems to be regarded while people are often oblivious to the conditions that produced it. So, yeah, I mean, it's horrible. And a friend of mine um, said when the famous Bill Leak cartoon um, about Aboriginal fathers uh, was circulated, I just want to break his fingers. And, um, you know, I would support, well, you know, we don't, uh, we don't encourage violence, of course, but that kind of vigilantism, <laughs> I can absolutely understand. Yeah, somebody's hurt you, somebody's cut you deep. I'm not saying that a cartoon can't cut people deep. But, yeah, break the guy's fingers. Well, that is... um, but, 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 you know, also, like, at what point are we going to consider these things just as evidence of things that are otherwise ignored? There was very little coverage about the intervention. I mean, even from the ABC, you know, the story of the intervention is that it needs to happen. You know, um, not much of a story uh, about the complete loss of the most basic human rights. So, yeah, I think, in a, you know, essentially uh, we're agreed. And, you know, I mean, not to be too petty about it, but to look at the people who are championing this and saying, well, this is racist and I disown it and, and all of that. I mean, they're generally media or entertainment mm. people. Um, and, you know, so they have these elevated voices. And not to even discount, you know, the fact that this is potentially very hurtful. But it's not as hurtful as, say, you know, the reality of 100% of those in juvenile detention in the Northern Territory being Aboriginal. Um, it's, you know, I mean, the amount of time that is given to talk, even about treaty, which is not an extraordinary thing to ask for. You know, I mean, in mainstream media, we get conversations about recognise. Now, that debate itself is set by a very particular group of people. And from what I understand, um, you know, Aboriginal... Original opinion is is you know fifty fifty mm. about whether it should be recognised or whether it should be treaty, and then you know there's a lot of discussion about what treaty should mean. I mean, and the statement from the heart in Uluru, like a like not a very provocative statement at all. You know, asking for you know some symbolic say in what happens in Canberra is like oh well no we reject that it's too much, and and we're worried about some piss strip who has an awful cartoon which has provoked exactly the same reaction as it always does which is to you know get the whole country talking about something when we've got these like 
actually more monstrous prime minister just installed. Certainly. It, it really does seem that all of this, this you know, whether it's the, uh, the Liberal left's uh, sort of declarations of virtual online or, uh, you know, this debate really, even being a debate, uh, really being uh, confined to, the, you know, the, as you're saying, the sort of knowledge class of, uh, of media and so forth on social media. And all of this, and I, I think, you know, the, the general sort of politics of representation or whatever people like to call it, I guess, sort of liberal identity politics, it's, it seems very much a reflection of the fact that, you know, postmodernism as uh, is dominating uh, any sort of political discourse in uh, in this country and, and perhaps in the world, and that's unfortunately, well, yeah, as you say, I it's mean, it's, it's kind yeah. of to the benefit of the liberal left, but also to the alt right. And do you, do you do you think that that is a, it's sort of a reflection of the fact that there isn't really a traditional materialist left in Australia that's uh, you know making arguments that's engaged in social movements. I mean, we have you know we have more sort of uh, hashtag campaigns rather than you know the social movements that perhaps we saw yeah, in the seventies, eighties, nineties. I just want to be clear about what you mean about postmodernism because I mean, if you are listening and you you know you never were kind of like pelted with postmodernism at university, well, you're very lucky. Um, <laughs> so, so post postmodernism is this idea um, that you know power exists everywhere. I'm doing a very simplified version of it that there are no centres of power, um, and that it's kind of like you know the thing that forms society is ideas all the way down. And if we just reform our ideas and our communications and our language, then everything else will follow. Now, the other way that the word postmodern might be used is to describe a particular reality, not to prescribe it, but to actually say, well, this is a particular reality. And such a reality might be, well, the Vietnam War was the first postmodern war in that it didn't have very many centres. It wasn't conventional. Uh, it was the uprising in part of a, of a peasant and workers' army, that it used different techniques, that it had women involved, that it toppled you know, the world's great military power. So it was this strange thing. Um, so it's not to say that it's good, it's just to say that it's an unusual um, theatre of war without a focus. And so one thing a good old lecturer of mine used to say was, you know, when thinking about postmodernism, think maybe about the era rather than the people who were saying, oh, well, this is the way it should go. But the moment that the era is postmodern is exactly the moment that you won't be able to see it. And for me... You know, if you go back and you read some of what I think are the good postmodernists, like Jean Baudrillard or whatever, um, it reads like, you know, the guy had a crystal ball because we don't see. And, you know, if you make the argument, well, look, you know, you might be a little bit too interested in the insulting cartoons and the correct language, and maybe that's not where our, our true struggle should should start. I mean, sure, I want those things too, but is that where it all starts? And the answer almost certainly always is, well, I can do two things at once, you know, like the girl in the in the, the taco advertisement, um, that I can have my representation and I can have my full social equality too. But, you know, I'm asking then where, when does that begin? And when does the fight for better material conditions, you know, less incarceration, less surveillance, uh, you know, less control over actual bodies. When does this start? And if you keep 
believing that if only you liberate the cartoons, that every time a, a Mark Knight expresses what is, you know, already known by many or, you know, believed to be true by many people in the culture, if you believe that one less cartoon will save one life, well, you're, you're, you're you know, you're horribly deluded. And, you, you know, this movement um, you can see occur in different places, right? So, say, in America, where poverty really has begun to bite a very large number of people, like enough people that they would actually express it in a vote, you see all sorts of strange things happening. Um, you see people like Bernie Sanders or Ocasio-Cortez um, getting you know, a large uh, contingent of people who are very passionate about what they have to say because a lot of, you know, what Ocasio-Cortez is remarkable for many reasons. But as she herself said, you know, the least of them is my identity. You know, yes, she is a young woman of colour, but in addition to that, she's a person with class analysis um, and a person that, you know, refined her political views in the office of Ted Kennedy, um, not a particularly progressive man, of course, but and, and with Bernie Sanders and through her involvement with the, the, the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. So her analysis is a class analysis. And the flip side of that is that, you know, perversely Donald, Donald Trump's analysis was also a class analysis. I mean, sure, he was only talking to the white working class and there's this, you know, kind of ridiculous myth that the working class is only white. Um, and But he did use the words working class. And so when people have a sense that somebody says to them, I understand you're encroaching poverty and poverty is encroaching in Australia too, then they respond. And that's the movement of the ages. Um, but in Australia, there's way too many people who are way too sort of cosseted, I guess, to really feel the way that um, the material world can bite. But they'll feel it soon enough. Um, they'll feel it when the housing bubble truly begins to burst. Um, and I know you guys out west have seen some extraordinary things happen to that end. Um, they'll see it when they, you know, can't pay their bills, essentially. But what is lacking, as you said... Um, is any, like, I mean, you didn't even have to say material analysis, but, like, any understanding that people will be motivated by their hip pockets. Like, there's not even a basic understanding of what used to be a truism in everyday liberal politics. Oh, people vote with their hip pockets. Of course they do. We're all self-interested. There's, a, you know, certainly that argument that people will, once, uh, you know, the economic and social crises hit, will uh, start to, I guess, take some collective action around, uh, you know, particularly class lines. Though, unfortunately, I think a lot of what we're witnessing, even in the United States, where, you know, the, the GFC has definitely hit people hard, has been that the absence of, I guess, a traditional left has meant that a lot of these social movements have become splintered. And like you say, it's, it's sort of, you can do both things and it's not yeah. at all to discount these social movements. You know, some of them are quite phenomenal and amazing in what they've managed to achieve. But you look at movements such as Black Lives Matter or, I, I guess, if you want to call it a, a movement, uh, the, the online Me Too campaign and so forth, they've definitely had, uh, you know, 
I guess, considerable effects, but a lot of those effects, unfortunately, have been uh, quite fragmented, have been quite isolated. Well, uh, yeah, I would say that the comparison of Black Lives Matter and Me Too is um, perhaps an unkind one to Black oh. Lives Matter, because Me Too is, is basically about telling stories. And it comes from, and it's about knowledge, it's about language. And so if we do enough good cartoons um, and if we tell enough moving stories, then something will happen. I mean, heaven forbid we actually, you know, join a union. Um, uh, it, it's all about, you know, yeah. giving giving charity, really. But with Black Lives Matter, I mean, there are a lot of things that have come out of it, like um, uh, Action Jackson um, is, you know, affiliated with Black Lives Matter. And so, you know, they're actually looking at kind of like local economies, um, local um, ways of imposing law, um, you know, local ways of organising um, communities that have been absolutely forgotten by the USA along, you know, sort of almost communal lines. And it helped. So I would, I would not say that Black Lives Matter has not done anything in, in because it has provided examples to people of how to do stuff. Like what we get is you know, here in Australia, it's like, oh, you know, what you've got to do is call out racism when you see it in a friend or whatever, um, but not so much in the, in the USA. But I would say that Me Too has been an unmitigated disaster because it's all this political will and all these, like, justifiably angry, pissed-off people who've copped abuse at work. But what's the answer? oh, well, we just keep telling our stories and we just keep telling our stories until something else happens. Well, you can keep telling your stories and publishing your great cartoons, but just like bad cartoons, they're not really going to make that much of a difference. What are we going to do? Keep collecting evidence, um, you know, keep calling everybody a survivor and not ask once, you know, not demand once, I need my rights at work because I'm telling you, if you have rights at work, the chances that you're going to be abused are, are, are significantly reduced. You know, you you will complain because you're not afraid of getting the sack. Um, and, you know, if you do get abused, then there are things in place for you to receive the treatment that you need and blah, blah, blah. And Me Too is like a great example because here in Australia, you know, Tracy Spicer started this organisation which got, what, like a 100 grand in crowdfunding. And the whole idea here is, you know, let's get lawyers in to fight every case of sexual harassment. But, like, seriously, are there enough billable hours, you know, to solve that problem when people have solved this on their own? Uh, it has to come from the mass and we have to acknowledge our power. And, you know, um, for me, it just, I don't know, I get very frustrated. So, you know, for me, it's like, well, there are lessons from the past about people standing shoulder to shoulder, not necessarily having to like each other or respect each other's difference. The whole idea is that that respect comes in the action of standing together and saying, look, if you're a bloke whose back's been screwed, you know, um, in his retail job, which many backs are, well, I stand with you. And if you're, a, you know, a chick um, or, a, you know, non-binary person or, an, you know, unconventional kind of bloke, who's copped abuse um, on the grounds of gender, well, then I stand with you as well. And same goes for race or anything. Mm. Um, and there, there is just, you know, there is just no understanding and there's 
all these elaborate defences for not organising. And a lot of the time I see it as like solving the problems of the status quo by applying more status quo logic, you know... Yeah, certainly. Um, Sorry, just to, to, to cut you off. I mean, that's where, where I was sort of going with that. And you've essentially answered the question anyway, is my, and to clarify, I, you know, I definitely think there's a huge difference between Black Lives Matter, Me Too, or other campaigns. But the similarity, yeah. I, I guess, is still on the fact that it's a sort of representation of, uh, of identity rather than class struggle yeah. or a collectivism or something. You know, even if we look back uh, to, say, S11, and there's probably, you know, definitely a few listeners that will at least remember that, while there was this idea that the anti- anti-globalization demonstrations and yeah the whole anti-globalization movement in the 90s and early 2000s there was this recognition that we were fighting for different things whether that's women's rights or for uh, industrial rights or for indigenous rights or so forth but there was the commonality and and that was you know very much centered at least you know around this idea of opposing global capitalism Uh, you've just uh, well not just a a while ago you've uh, released a book trying to I guess potentially inject some of these politics a little bit of uh, of, of marxist thought yeah, back into I mean, into the youth i mean do you, how do you, how do you sort of <laughs> <laughs> into the youth uh, how do you uh read that in terms of you know do you think that you know people do want more they want more of an actual a critical understanding of of, of the economy and, and why these issues certainly um in my own interactions with people who are younger than me um they tend to be more interested um, and, and some older people too. You say, well, you know, what do you mean by class? What is class? And um, you know, there's all these words that get bandied about, and quite often the people who utter them have no idea what they mean. And so you, you say you get a word like neoliberalism. Now people will just use this uh, as a slur now, as they will use fascist. But it's like not to be a pedant or anything, but it's actually quite important to know the difference between you know a fascist and an ultra reactionary. And it's quite important to know, you know, the different cycles of capitalism, whether it's Keynesian or or neoliberal and what they mean. And so, you know, I just got a lot of um, emails and people saying, well, you know, what do you mean? Explain it. And so I was like, you know, I sent uh, someone with bloody marks, uh, you know, fried my brain with capital and just thought, you know, and other thinkers as well, and thought, well, I'm going to offer the basic part of, you know, the great class analyst, Marx, and here, do what you want with it. Like, this is what I mean. This is what, you know, millions of other people um, have meant. And I wrote it very much for for the time. Um, And so it's a very disposable book. Like, I don't think in three to six months it'll have much value at all because, you know, it talks about the US election. It talks about the Australian housing crisis and just tries to, you know, apply an idea of historical materialism or, or class analysis and and to really try to get people to understand um, the, the movement and the conversation between, you know, the material world or the way our economy is organised or the mode of production or the base, if you prefer, and then the thing that you might want to call the superstructure, the language, the cartoons, the law, everything that's on top of it. Now, it's not just that it's all about that base. Um, of course, the superstructure, the cartoons, etc., have an influence. But if you just leave out any understanding whatsoever of the base and you get to the point where you actually don't even talk about, you know, the lives that are diminished and, and, and ended, by 
their circumstance in the base where you're stuffed. And I'm just sick to the back teeth of people talking about cartoons. Yes, for the 98th time, I acknowledge that hurtful discourse hurts people. I understand that people saying racist and sexist and horrible and homophobic and ableist things is vile. But what are you going to do about it? Are you going to keep writing pamphlets until they no longer have these ideas? And are you ever going to see the background to the lives that top these things? Why is there one vile word in the English language that can absolutely reduce a person of colour to feeling like nothing? Why does that word even exist? It didn't start with the word. It started somewhere else. And it's maintained by the word, but it's also maintained by other systems. And I, look, the, really, the simplest way I, I explain this um, to people who haven't really ever thought about like the, 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 the way that the world of knowledge and the world of the material interact, the economy and then people's attitudes or whatever, um, and the way... I find it good to describe to people who've never had any class analysis. Is well. But you see a lot of, like, feminists sort of talking about fashion. And as far as they're concerned, the worst thing about fashion is that there's not enough diverse women on the catwalk, right? And, you know, well, then why don't you consider that the problem is the catwalk itself? You know, it's not that... If you have people elevated on a catwalk who are trying to give you, her the designer and the corporation that funds her or him, an idea of something unattainable and that changes every three months, isn't that the problem? Does it matter if you have diversity on the catwalk? I mean, sure, it might make you feel better if there's somebody closer to your side. But look behind that, look at the structure, think of the catwalk itself and, hey, why not think of um, the women who largely make our clothes? They're mostly in Bangladesh and some of them are dead, you know, um, because of their working conditions. And so if we fail to see the background and all we want is better representation, then better representation is all we're going to get. And better representation is all we're going to argue about. And we'll get Sky News saying, oh, well, Mark Knight wasn't racist. And Mark Knight saying Mark Knight wasn't racist. And then other people saying, well, he clearly was. Um, and then some people saying, oh, well, you know, maybe he wasn't racist, but he was accidentally racist. I mean, who gives a crap? You know, I mean, who gives a crap? What society produces this racism. Again, not to say for a minute that I don't understand that people aren't very, very hurt by it. But the truly painful thing is the racist structures um, that inform our society. And you can't just dislodge that from people's heads. You, you, you really can't. I just I really want to stop it too, because I don't like the idea of living in a world where people are, are, are injured by so many means. I mean, just shows my sleep, to be frank. If you don't want that, well, you've got to go deeper 